Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode, I spoke with a highly respected leader in private equity, Daniel Peterzak. As a partner at KKR, Daniel co-leads the firm's private credit funds with about $72 billion in assets under management. In this conversation, we covered a lot of ground in a short time. Daniel shares a fresh, impactful vision for private equity. He offers interesting insights into his credit business. We talk about asset-based finance funds, financing the real-world economy, and even dove into Kim Kardashian's new private equity fund, and much more. Additionally, for our student listeners interested in pursuing a career in private equity or at a top firm like KKR, Daniel offers invaluable insight into not just how they hire, but the qualities and habits that make early career professionals truly stand out and rise to the top. Daniel's vision for private equity resonates with our own vision at Scholars of Finance, a future where all investors steward the world's capital to serve the greater good. We are lucky to call Daniel a supporter of our work at SOF. He is an advisor, an alpha investor, and has invested his time in our students in many ways. We are so grateful for him sharing his valuable time with us today and with you, our community. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Daniel and learn as much about the changing landscape of private equity as we did. And without further delay, we bring you Daniel Peterzak. Daniel Peterzak, it is such a pleasure to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast today. This has been a much-awaited conversation. First and foremost, how are you and where are you calling in from? Well, it's good to see you, Ross. And I'm well, other side of the summer, so back to school here at work in many ways, but sitting in our office in Hudson Yards in New York. Excellent. Excellent. Daniel, I've been looking forward to the conversation. You've gotten really involved in Scholars of Finance, a member of our advisory board, one of our alpha investors. I've been so excited for you to share your perspective on private equity, on your story, on KKR. Would love to dive right in because I know you're tight on time. We love starting all of our episodes with just the highlight reel of our guests' life and career told in their own words. Can you share your story and your background with our audience? Yeah. I mean, maybe split into sort of two pieces. I mean, pre-career, you know, I grew up in, in Southern New Jersey, just outside Philadelphia, more of a working class family, a family of plumbers and carpenters. Nobody actually went to college in my family. I had a bunch of odd jobs here, but mainly kind of worked in the, in the, in the golf sort of industry, either pro shop or, or sort of, sort of on the course itself actually got sort of pretty good at golf as a kid. You know, made my way to Lehigh University. That was my undergraduate degree where I studied accounting, got additional sort of education in terms of an MBA from Wharton, which I did under their MBA for executives program. I think the highlight reel in terms of careers is the first job was following that accounting degree at Price Waterhouse. Wanted to get to New York away from, we'll call it the Philadelphia sort of roots, just to go to a bigger city. That worked well. Decided I wanted to get into banking and finance. Went to CIBC World Markets in, in 2000, which was a great firm at the time. It was kind of very flat, very entrepreneurial. The business was headed by a bunch of individuals who used to work at Drexel. So pretty well versed in, in leverage finance and structure finance. Ultimately made my way to sort of DB. You know, I was at DB for 10 years, 
maybe the most impactful thing in my career was from a location perspective was 10 years New York, 10 years London. And now I've been back in New York here since 2000, really 2017. But I joined KKR in 2016. It's been a very enjoyable experience thus far. And I'm a partner here at KKR with another partner of mine. I look after our private credit business globally, which is about $72 billion of AUM. I think about it as everything a liquid credit from corporate credit to asset backed. Thanks, Daniel. Appreciate the succinct yet poignant highlight reel. And there's so many threads to pull on. The first one that I want to pull on, you had mentioned you got your bachelor's at Lehigh, your MBA through Wharton's executive program. How do you think your educational experience has shaped your career trajectory? And I'm especially curious to hear if going to business school really represented yeah. a change in direction for you. So one, I think I was lucky with Lehigh. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than sort of good. It was a, it was a good place to to get sort of trained and get educated. The accounting degree was very practical. Like the reality is all of finance or all of companies' balance sheets kind of revolve around that, right? So that was a you know a good foundation. It actually got you a job and, and all of those big professional service firms, I think are really good learning experiences out of school, right? You get access to do things, probably do more things than you should at age 23 and 24. And it did sort of propel me, I guess, you know, on to sort of forward things. I think my MBA experience was probably a little bit different. Like it probably wasn't a transformational moment in my career. I was already working inside of banking. For me, it was a decision tree that I think education is very important, right? I think it's foundational. It, it builds your own sort of personal CV. Nobody can ever sort of take that away from you. I had an ax to do something that was in Philadelphia. So that program sort of fit well. So, I mean, I probably stayed in some ways on my regular way career path, but I did that with a much better foundation. And obviously Wharton is an excellent school to get an MBA at. One of the best, one of, one of the best in the world. You've had a rapid ascent in finance and are widely known and respected in the industry. A question that I want to ask you that we've been starting to ask all of our guests is what values, principles, paradigms, or traits do you think most contributed to your success and you're eventually becoming a partner at one of the top private equity firms in the world? I think it's a couple of things, right? I, I think I've always prided myself on just hard work. I think I'm grateful to be here. Thinking back to my youth or sort of growing up, this probably wasn't an area of the world that I sort of interacted. So I think there are times with Wall Street jobs where people feel almost entitled to get them or they went to school X or Y. So this is sort of where they're supposed to be. So a little bit grateful, a little bit humble, always into the hard work. I send my team probably once a year. People can Google it. It's called like the 10 things that require zero talent. So I actually have it plastered on my wall in my office. I think that was one. I've always enjoyed running a team or being a team leader. And I think that the key for me with that was always be prepared to kind of roll up your sleeves and never kind of ask somebody to do something that you wouldn't have wanted to do. Right. I think that's been it's been important for me to sort of win the hearts and minds of those folks. Yeah, so I think that sort of leadership point has been sort of important. And this goes a little bit to SOF. I think your career is long. I think doing what you say you're going to do is important. I think ethics are important. I think skirting issues or flying too close to the sun is not going to work long term. There might be sort of short term gains, but that's not, I think, the game to play. So I think you put the three of those together and I feel fortunate for what I've been able to sort of do, but those have probably been the guiding principles. 
Daniel, I remember back when Elizabeth Sandler, one of our board members, a friend of yours, originally connected us. And in our first call, you had mentioned this 10 things that require zero talent. I remember looking that up right away and thinking, okay, there's still hope for me. (laughs) (laughs) Not a hard list, right? Not a hard list. (laughs) It was a helpful list and an encouraging list. I appreciate you sharing that. If I'm summarizing properly, it's it's work hard, be a humble, good leader and do the right thing. Do you think that would be a fair summary? I think it's a nice summary. Thanks. I've got to say that in our interactions together over the last couple of years of getting to know each other, your mentorship, you advising scholars of finance, I think those things have clearly come through. You really challenging us at SOF to push for results, to drive for outcomes, A, B, to make sure you've encouraged me and coached me to be the best leader that I can be, which I've really appreciated. And C, obviously, you aligning with our mission of inspiring character and integrity in in the finance leaders of tomorrow checks that third principle, right? What we're literally here trying to create a generation of future leaders who are ethical, who do the right thing, who don't take those small chances or those small lapses, right? That can compound over time. So just want to plus one all that. I'd love to shift to get a little more context on KKR as a firm. KKR as a firm has evolved a lot over the years and private equity as an industry has evolved a lot over the years. You talked about your own business within it, a 72 billion AUM private credit business. Can you tell our audience about KKR as a firm more broadly, what it looks like today? Yeah, for sure. It has had real longevity, right? Henry and George really started this in 1976, but it's grown to excess of $400 billion. I think your evolution point is correct. It was pretty much a private equity only firm, probably almost through the mid-2000s, almost a little bit probably through the financial crisis. I think like others, we've grown our footprint meaningfully outside of just traditional private equity. We've got a large infrastructure business. We have a large real estate business. We have a large credit business. You know, So it's become a little bit more of just a, a broader sort of alts firm. I think there's a lot of synergies between those businesses, especially when the firms are, are run well. The culture of this place is unique, which allows that to sort of really come through. I've been just so impressed with Henry and George and and our two sort of current co-CEOs on how they go about it. I mean, we're a publicly traded sort of company, but I think we also know who we work for in our core businesses, right? We're investing money on behalf of pension plans, retirees, whether they're teachers or firefighters or sovereign wealth funds or whatever it might be. So I think we're pretty... We're focused on investment performance. The firm does really operate truly as one firm, which was extremely important to me in wanting to join here. And I think they've done a pretty amazing job as a management team to be able to keep the culture together over over the years, especially with the growth. We've got almost 2,000 employees today. I don't know the number perfectly, so I'll probably get it wrong. But I'm going to say in 07, I'd suspect it was probably 200 or 300 employees. Right. And they've been able to sort of keep that culture. So culture is important when it comes to businesses, especially in investing business. Right. You've talked about this before. I would love to hear it. I'm sure our audience would appreciate hearing more about what KKR's organizational culture is like. Uh, what do you think yeah. differentiates KKR from other similar firms? One, I, I think we do have a, a list of core and base values. I mean, they've been written down over the years and essentially sort of laminated. I think the big sort of pieces of those is being humble, wanting to be a learning culture, a culture that evolves, wanting to be a true partnership, wanting to give each other feedback to allow us to kind of grow. 
I think I'd probably summarize it the most succinctly in sort of that teamwork and sort of one firm culture, right? And I think the people at KKR who use the word me a lot versus kind of we, it's a little bit more of a challenging place. And there's some firms who can excel under that sort of mindset, maybe some of the more kind of hedge fund sort of driven firms that are sort of out there, but that's not the culture of this place. And, you know, it's been a real pleasure to, to be part of this for the last seven years. That begs a question that I think a lot of our student listeners will be really, really curious to hear. You know, over the last year, we've done a pilot partnership between Scholars of Finance and KKR as a firm with the campus recruiting team. And a lot of our students are really interested in KKR as a firm. Can you give us some insight into how KKR hires across levels? What makes someone stand out initially as a strong candidate? And then what do you think makes them stick around and grow within the firm? Yeah, for the folks kind of listening, I would probably take a step back and remember that most private equity firms did not hire undergraduates until probably the last sort of five years, right? It was much more of an MBA-driven sort of culture or an experience hire culture. So in some ways, I think it's evolving. We are looking for people who are dynamic. We like to use the word good athlete a lot, right? Not in kind of the pure play athletics, but they've got different skills, Right. You can put them into sort of different roles. I think we have an expectation that people are going to come here and and work hard, but we're going to provide them foundation and sort of training and we're going to want them to grow. Right. And we're going to probably use the footprint of the entire firm to let them grow. Right. We've done different training programs over the last year and a half, sort of post COVID different parts of the world. I think we're very happy to allow people to transfer between sort of investing teams or between sort of functional areas. And I think that's a big advantage as the firm has grown, we have the ability to kind of do that. And that's a real, I think, positive way to retain people. I love hearing that you're using, as you say, the whole footprint of the firm to help people grow. I think that probably will strike a lot of our listeners as very enticing. Speaking about our students specifically, they are incredibly hungry for growth, incredibly hungry for growth opportunities and to find a place where they can grow. Would love to pivot back towards your specific business line. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe I saw Business Insider recently ran a story about your $2.1 billion asset-based finance fund at KKR, which you closed over the summer. Can you explain what this fund is and why it's important in a volatile market? Yeah, sure. If you think about our private credit business, we really do sort of two things, right? We lend money to companies, you know, that could be first lien, second lien, or, or other forms of junior debt or we have an asset-based finance business. For that, I would think about either portfolios of financial and hard assets or, or companies who are kind of FinCos or sort of specialty finance names. We found that there was a real void in the market post-financial crisis. The regulatory environment for the banks forced them to really take a step back from buying portfolios of mortgages or auto loans or leases and securitizing them and selling them into the market you had regulatory rules like Volcker and the risk retention that pushed that down. You also had a time and a place where hedge funds, the more traditional hedge funds, were pretty active in this. What they came to realize is asset liability mismatches don't work, right? You can't have a fund that has quarterly redemptions and be buying sort of long-term assets. So what are we doing? Thematically, we're looking for deals where we can privately originate and privately negotiate. We are focused on the consumer sector. So think about consumer loans, credit cards, auto loans. We're focused on the residential mortgage space. We are focused on hard assets. So think about various kind of leasing 
businesses, you know, aviation or sort of otherwise, we're focused on providing lending facilities that just the regular way commercial banks used to do, but are now sort of capitally, capital not efficient, were sort of some of the more esoteric asset classes. And I think what makes us excited about this is this is a big space. This is like real world economy stuff, right? Mortgage loans for people's houses or auto loans or SME financing or sort of leasing. That market is big. We think it's probably $5 trillion today with the advent of some certain fintech businesses and just the growth of consumer or sort of business credit. That's probably on its way to seven, seven and a half trillion. So there's a lot of white space there. Obviously, not everything is for us, but we like financing the real world economy. I think it's important for us for our investors because people invest in private credit to generate let's call that additional returns for what they could get in the high yield market or the loan market, right? And they want those additional returns and they're trading off liquidity because when people invest in our pools of capital, they generally have to hold it, you know, at least on the institutional side for the duration of the fund. I think we're able to provide them excess returns here. I think we're able to provide our people who we're partnering with kind of customized solutions to allow their businesses to grow. And I think the big theme for that fund, which has been pretty interesting, is it is a credit play, but it is a diversifying credit play from corporate credit. Like a portfolio of mortgages or a portfolio of leases is going to perform differently in an economic downturn, right? Hopefully better because it's collateral backed. I mean, inflationary environment, I think that's pretty positive, but we're excited about that business. We did not have a dedicated team here until I joined. That team's now 35 people. I think we've got the broadest sort of footprint out there and from our sort of competing firms. I think the team has done a really good job and hopefully we'll continue to do so over the coming years. Daniel, that segues into the next question perfectly that I actually wanted to ask you. You've rapidly built a team to focus on asset-based finance deals within private credit. What was your strategy and approach building this world-class team so quickly? It was hard in some ways. We had a couple of quite talented sort of younger individuals who wanted to transfer and sort of do that. So that was a really nice sort of foundation. We hired the day-to-day leadership of that team in the U.S. and Europe kind of early, right? So we knew who to kind of build around or sort of build under. You know, it's a little bit of a specialized space. So you're either hiring from structured finance or securitization type businesses at banks or from other buy side shops. I think we're using the same idea about trying to find sort of good athletes. We're trying to hire people who had a lot of experience, but maybe a little bit on the younger side in terms of years in the business outside of the the, the sort of leadership sort of piece of that. And we made them function like a team. People have individual goals. And when you start a year or the mandates are sort of targets, but in my mind, the individual pools of capital and the returns they generate versus Either what we told our investors or what maybe the benchmark might be is is how people are measured. And I think that team environment has worked. This team is very little turnover from sort of who we added. The good news about a KKR, people do want to take that phone call if there's a job interview available. Maybe they're not ready to leave their current job. Maybe this isn't the job for them, but the brand is a big advantage in attracting talent. Yeah, I would imagine it it plays really well as you're building the team. You use the assets you have, right? (laughs) That actually segues into a question that I was really curious to ask 
It's an interesting time in private equity. It's been in the mainstream media lately with the news that Kim Kardashian is launching Sky Partners, SKKY Partners, a quote, private equity firm that plans to invest in areas such as consumer products, hospitality, luxury, digital commerce, and media, end quote. Do you think this is part of a broader trend where more celebrities will start their own PE funds, where you'll see a proliferation of PE funds? What does this mean for established firms like KKR as well? Yeah, that definitely got some headlines. There was actually an interesting piece in the FT about it. So a couple of things. Number one, and I don't know much about Kim Kardashian, to be fair, but when you do sort of pull it up, she's got some pretty successful consumer and retail related companies or success stories, both on the apparel side and the cosmetic side. She could argue that that's a nice link for what she's doing, right? And she did partner with a pretty senior person who came out of Carlisle. Right. So I think this is not being set up as a hobby, which is impressive. You know, the FT was actually really complimentary of the Carlisle individual for him sort of thinking outside of the box of sort of who to partner with. I don't think there's going to be a list of private equity firms founded by celebrities. I do think that with how the media world has changed, how TV contracts have changed, maybe even sort of the earning power of some of these, we'll call it megastars in their various sports. I could see them partnering more with either certain other institutional or accredited investors, allowing them to almost monetize maybe their brand from a sourcing perspective or a kind of opening door perspective. I think that's different than trying to be the founder of a PE firm, right? But I think A-Rod's even the CEO of a couple of SPACs, right? Probably using his kind of sports skills. I appreciate you sharing your perspective on the new fund and on how the landscape's shifting. In terms of what goes into private equity and what goes into building a career in it, what are some of the major trends you see right now? Who do you think are on the way to becoming the private equity leaders of the 2030s and 2040s? Yeah, I think it's those individuals who sort of, I will call it either challenge themselves or push themselves. Private equity firms have gotten bigger, but I think they're still very entrepreneurial in terms of thought process, right? I think it's important you spend time learning and reading about things that aren't just your area, putting yourself in in those sort of uncomfortable positions, whether it's from a meeting perspective or a speaking perspective. But I think you kind of constantly have to grow. And I think you also need to be mindful about the landscape out there. I think private equity firms have done a quite a good job for their investors over the years. I think you need to be mindful. That's, that's again, I think what you're sort of here for. To me, it's those individuals who want to try to think outside what their day-to-day job is, right? And I think they have to be very, we'll call it respectful for chain of command or respectful for how kind of deals actually get done. But I like people who speak up in IC meetings or have views to share or ask questions because they want to learn, who grab the person who's four or five years older than them. They have coffee or breakfast or a beer sort of after work. They learn about their experiences. And, And Ross, I would never have people undervalue the growth of their own sort of personal network, right? I mean, I think network is quite important as you just find jobs and expand your career. But I think as you start to sadly get older like me, right? You're starting to find others, folks you went to school with or worked together before. You end up being in the same deals. You you know, have business opportunities to do or you can help each other out. Your network is very important. And I think that's almost a bit of a job. I think it's the onus is on yourself to stay connected with people. I think it's more than LinkedIn, 
right? I think human interaction is, is quite important. I think people also need to be humble enough to know that it requires a little bit of luck too. You, know, you could be a, a rock star, but you're kind of in the wrong seat or the wrong firm and you have to pivot. But I think as long as you have the, the gumption to get up and push forward, we'll be okay. I appreciate the reminder on the importance of luck. I remember even earlier in our conversation, you had just talked about feeling lucky, grateful to go to Lehigh and how that really propelled you in, in your career. You know, I think there are a lot of people even going to the Whartons of the world who take that for granted and don't have that sense of gratitude, that sense of humility. And so I think the real lesson that I'm plucking out of what you just shared is, is the importance of humility. Uh, and that weaves through everything you just talked about. The humility to ask questions, the humility to try to build a network with other people who can teach you and help you grow, the humility to know that it's not just your doing. I oftentimes talk about how you and other advisors, mentors of mine have really helped me become something, an impactful contributing member of society. I just feel grateful to even be contributing in some way. I appreciate you sharing the importance on all those points. I'd love to shift to private equity as a whole as an industry a little bit more. Traditional buy and flip PE has received a lot of criticism over the decades, especially due to the firms that really in the beginning of the industry where they were simply buying businesses, cutting costs, levering them with that, and then selling them at a quick premium. However, we're seeing more and more firms like KKR trying to help good businesses get better and help improve industries in earnest. What do you think is the societally impactful role that PE can play in the world or said differently? How can PE be a force for good? I do think you have to to bring it down to the simple facts. I mean, the largest investors in most of the private equity firms out there, meaning the funds of these private equity firms, are pension plans or endowments or other forms of either retiree or sort of otherwise money, right? So I think the industry has done a good job of generating excess return for its investors. And I think that's important. Right. Because if you think about these pension plans have real obligations, those obligations need to be serviced over sort of a long time. So I think that's just an important framework to allow these to continue to grow. And you look at even some of the sovereign wealth funds, which are probably more sovereign specific. They're doing that to kind of fund the, the budgets of their various countries. So I think that's the job it's kind of done. I think that said, I mean, on the company side, I think you're right. I think there was probably an old historical slashing cost which meant sort of slashing jobs to just move on to these companies and sort of sell them. I think the investment thematics have changed a little bit. I think a lot of this has been more roll-ups and sort of growth strategies. I think there's been a fair amount of kind of jobs created. And I think there's a big focus right now. And one of our partners, a gentleman who, who co-runs North American sort of private equity, has been focused on this concept of ownership works. You can actually sort of look that up. It's something we're very proud of here. The idea in its most simplistic form is you invest into a company or buy a company, you just don't have the senior management in the equity or available for sort of equity awards down the road. You actually let every single employee sort of be involved. And I think what we have found, we found two things. Number one, the retention rates for these companies are higher. The performance statistics of these companies are higher. The end of the day, sort of earnings or sort of EBITDA numbers are higher. So while the equity has been more spread, right? So while that's come out of maybe the share that the private equity firm would have had or the existing management team would have had, it's been a really great result because the, the performance of these companies have been meaningful. And then you've now let this entire employee base share in the economics and create 
a wealth event for these individuals. And I think that's come with financial literacy training. That's come with sort of tax planning, other things to make this quite a, a viable sort of thing. So I do see that as a real model going forward, not just for us, but for the industry. I think it's powerful. I think it's powerful to make everybody feel like an owner, because I think that is sort of quite important. But I think the private equity firms are mindful about you know, all of these things and also mindful, Ross, maybe about some of the past and need to do the right things for their investors because we've got a fiduciary obligation to them, right? But want to do that mindful about everything else going on in the world as well. We're not even going to sort of touch on this in sort of here because it's a longer conversation, but, you know, ESG has become a big conversation, I think, in everything we do. We are mindful about it in our sort of processes and procedures, we're not investing, at least in my part of the business, we're not investing in deals today from like a straight ESG sort of angle. But I think we have realized that a lot of the factors there are actually good credit underwriting tools and allows us to actually make better investments. So I think all of that is on the minds of folks who work in, in firms like this and, and will be for going forward for quite some time. Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate the really detailed response there. And one thread I want to pull on, and this is especially for our, our student listeners or some of our younger professional listeners, a lot of the executives who listen to this podcast will understand everything you're saying. When you say that ESG factors and criteria, those are good credit underwriting factors. Can you unpack a little bit more what that means for someone who's not familiar with the underwriting process? Yeah. I mean, although maybe just in its most simplistic terms, I think we've seen companies that have really good governance structures and probably diversity at sort of the board or the management team, that's been a good thing for their business, especially on the governance side, right? Remember, on my seat as a credit investor, our goal is to get our money back, right? We're getting paid kind of a fixed coupon or fixed kind of yield in some ways. So I think we want those things that are sort of downside protected. I think we've seen some of the industries that are maybe a little bit harder to want to be involved with, maybe from a social perspective or a rep risk perspective. While there might be really good lending opportunities there, I think what we have seen is when something does go wrong, you can really take a, a fair amount of volatility on your loan, right, from a recovery perspective. So I think flushing that out is quite important. I think we've included some of these, you know, sort of questions in our in our sort of underwriting criteria. And again, our job, specifically on the corporate credit side of our business, is to be a credit picker, right? We want as few defaults as possible. It's not a trading business. It's an investing business. We own these things till maturity or they get repaid. You know, if we do make a mistake, we want the downside to be mitigated or, or minimized. Appreciate the more detailed explanation there. And I hope that for any of our, our students listening, that all makes sense to you. And you're excited to learn a thing or two about credit. And for all the executives listening, I hope you don't mind me doing a deeper dive when you already know what Daniel's talking about. Daniel, with a few minutes left, I would love to hit you with our rapid fire round. I want to ask you three rapid fire questions in short succession. Just share the first thing that comes to mind and then we'll wrap up. So first, you're a partner at KKR. You have a family. You have other priorities like SOF. How do you balance it all? How do you manage work-life balance? Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is it's hard. I've been very lucky on my sort of personal life side. I just had my 22nd wedding anniversary. I think we viewed our relationship as kind of a partnership as it relates to our family. I think, Ross, it's been required us to be very deliberate in terms of scheduling and sort of timing, right? We made the decision in New York to stay living in New York City because it was a quick commute. You can raise your hand and get home. You can sort of get to the school. 
I think people just need to acknowledge it's in this industry that's there's a little bit of hard work that's going to be required to keep that balance and sort of keep you sane. I think you need to make time when you're you know out of the office. You need to get home for dinner. You need to spend time with the kids. And and I think it's changed over time too, right? I've got a 16 year old and 12 year old now who sadly don't really want to hang out with us, but they want us to take them to places or sporting events, and right. So we need you know their sporting <laughs> events, right? So we need to. It's a different sort of time when they were four and eight. It was about being home and around the kitchen table. Yeah. First of all, congrats to you and Mariella on your 22nd wedding anniversary. Incredibly exciting. And I will segue into our second rapid fire question. You talked about a couple articles you've read in the FT recently. What are you reading or listening to right now? And what are your sources for continuous learning and information? Yeah, I don't do a good enough job with this, to be honest. Right. I try to skim the, the journal and the FT every day. I sadly prefer the paper copy, but you know, paper sort of on my iPad will sort of do. I find The Economist a, a very good sort of thing because it's pretty easy to put in your bag and sort of carry that around. We use Bloomberg here as a, as a source. I think the current event news is kind of there. So those in my mind are like that current event bucket. I try to read as many sort of books as I can. I think there'll be periods in August, I probably read three. In September, I'll probably read zero. I try to toggle between either one kind of nonfiction or business book and then one sort of fiction book and then sort of back and forth. And I think that that, you know, keeps it a little bit lighter. I think some of the things that you just can't read business books all day, you can't read history books all day. I don't think it's a great idea to read fiction books all day either. So I would encourage people to absorb as much info as possible. I think those who are successful are quite frankly, very well read, which sadly is not me, but I try. <laughs> What's one of your favorite nonfiction books? The favorite nonfiction book I probably read, well, maybe two, at least two that come to mind. Boris Johnson wrote a book on Churchill that I'm going to blank on the name. It was a phenomenal book. Boris Johnson, who is the now sort of ex-prime minister of the UK. And there was a book by Eric, I think his name, Larson. It was the story of the U.S. ambassador in Germany right before the start of World War II. And it's kind of fascinating the kind of world they were sort of living in and what was going on with Germany and so the Nazi party. I like history. I like World War II stuff. That's been kind of my thing. We share that passion. I went to my stepfather took me to London right when I graduated college. We did this like 16 day four country tour back in time. We did England, France, Italy, and Israel sort of four days each. And when we were in London, we went to the World War II exhibit. We went to Churchill's old bunker, five flights of stairs down. And he always jokes, I couldn't tear Ross away from those giant screens with all the information about Churchill. <laughs> That's actually the number one. When people, having lived there for 10 years, when people ask me, like, what do I need to go see in London? That's the number one kind of thing I give them to see. Oh, it's called plus the one to that. Yes. The Churchill War Rooms. That was incredible. Last rapid fire question, Daniel, a softball here. You've been so generous with the time you've given to scholars of finance already. As an alpha investor, an advisor, a mentor and friend to me, what stood out to you about our organization and our mission? And why would you encourage others to support our work? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, I think I've always had a bit of a probably a passion, especially probably coming from Lehigh which wasn't a great school that kind of hired people into sort of Wall Street, you know, allowing people to get some access or kind of cease and then sort of network 
I think finance can get a bad rap or the financial services industry in some ways can get a bad rap for everything that's kind of bad about it. I think it does do a decent amount of good, or I think it's probably the headlines are not like the reality or sort of misunderstood. And I think that schools, when they do sort of teach ethics, it's a, which is a tremendously important class. And I think some of those professors are probably some of the most dynamic individuals sort of at the universities, but it is textbook learning and kind of not real life, right? So I think this idea of, on an industrial version, you're doing kind of the idea of me going back to Lehigh and sort of mentoring two or three kids and you're giving them access. I mean, you've, you've had events here in New York that have a lot of people sort of learn and they network. And I think these podcasts are great things that you sort of do. I think it's a nice way to give back to to the students that are out there. I was just mentioning before we started, I got to spend time with the Lehigh chapter, right, which is new kind of on campus this year. And I actually asked them why they all joined, right, as we kind of went around the room. And I think the world's a different place today than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. I think 20, 30, 40 years ago, people were doing their jobs to make money and they wanted to make as much money as possible. I think when I look at our younger talent and sort of our younger stars on the team, they want more than that, right? They want purpose. They want sort of individual growth. They probably want just a, a bunch of different experiences along with just the regular rate job and sort of paycheck. So I've enjoyed it and it's been good to be involved. Thanks, Daniel. We are deeply grateful for your support, for the firm's growing support as well. And want to thank you for joining us on the podcast today here on Investing in Integrity. Can't wait to have you on again in the future and hope you have a great rest of your week in the meantime. That's great. Thank you. Have a good day. Cheers. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.